This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We're in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, and the testimony uh, that Ephraim just gave... Uh, really ties in in some ways to where we've been in the, in the book of Acts. The last two weeks, uh, as we've looked at the gospel going to the Gentiles, uh, from the Jews to the Gentiles, we have talked about very much the theme he just talked about, which was the gospel breaking down barriers, the gospel breaking down racial barriers, uh, socioeconomic class barriers, gender barrier, male and female. We've been looking at how the gospel does that. And so really the big picture of what's happened as we've gone through chapters 9 and, uh, or rather 10 and 11 of Acts, found in the, in the last verse that Rob preached on last week, uh, Acts eleven eighteen, when they, meaning the Jerusalem church, heard these things, what they heard was that Peter had gone and preached the gospel to Gentiles, Cornelius and his household. They glorified God saying, quote, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That is a huge, earth shattering, epic, underline it, bold it, a highlight it statement in the history of redemption. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. It's just almost impossible for us to imagine the uh, how radical of a statement that was and how much of a move that was for the Jews, especially Jews who had uh, cultural uh, preferences and prejudices that went beyond the Scripture, that God never ordained, but they had certain se- separatist mentalities toward Gentile superiority that for them to welcome in the Gentiles because of the work of Christ was stellar. And so for the rest of the book of Acts, we're going to be studying about the inclusion of the Gentiles, which is probably almost all of us here today, so we can celebrate that. And we're going to be looking at how the gospel continues to press out uh, from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so today, we're going to read a really important passage in the book of Acts that has, it's going to be a short passage, that has to do with the establishment of the church at Antioch, which will be a key, key passage for the rest of uh, the book. So let's read in verse 19 of chapter 11. We'll cover 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians." Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. 
So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the... uh, the powerful description that we've been studying of how your message of good news breaks down cultural barriers and that you unite people who are very different in Jesus. We pray that you would continue that work in our church. We pray that you would continue to build us together. We pray that you would continue to give us a common heart for you and that you would take people of different races and backgrounds and preferences of all sort, and that you would build us together in Christ, and that you would mature us in holiness in Christ as one family, one body before you. We pray that you would show us your ways and your will in this passage that we've just read, and we pray that it would influence us, that the work of Christ would influence us and change us as a people. So speak to us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the mission to Antioch really becomes the mission to the Gentiles because it is from this church that we just read about that Paul will ultimately, he's still called Saul, he's about to be called, start being called Paul, that he will be thrust out and he will take the gospel to the nations in international missions is what it really will be. So I want to look at how Antioch is formed. And here's the first thing about the mission to Antioch. The mission is birthed through nameless witnesses. The mission is birthed through nameless witnesses. Look at what happens in verse 19. Those, we don't know their names, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So what happened was there was a persecution back in chapter 8. If you turn there, if you remember, we read about the stoning of Stephen. He was killed for his testimony. And in 8.1 it says, and Saul, this is so ironic, and Saul approved his execution. So Saul approved the execution of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So this is where we are in chapter 11, it's catching us up, and it's saying, when Stephen was stoned and killed, everyone scattered except the apostles. And it said they went throughout Judea and Samaria, but what we learn here is that they also pressed farther north. They went to Phoenicia, they went out about 100 miles out in the middle of the Mediterranean to the island of Cyprus, And they went north to Antioch as well. And it says they spoke the word, verse 19, to no one except Jews. So they weren't thinking beyond the way Peter was thinking. Peter was shocked when God called him to go to Cornelius' house. So they were thinking the same way. They were just preaching the gospel to Jews. Verse 30, but there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, those are the Greeks, spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the word of God. So there was this group of people from the island of Cyprus and who are also from uh, Cyrene, which is northern Africa, there were these folks and they decided to step out and, and, and breach bridge the cultural gap and speak to Hellenists. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly, this is an unusual word here, translated Hellenists, but we know there were people of Greek culture and probably Greek 
non-Jews. They were probably Gentiles, and I think there's a number of reasons for that. It's, it contrasts with the previous verse. First of all, it says they preached to no one but Jews. However, there was this one group of people that preached to Hellenists. So the implication is not that they preached to Greek Jews, but that they preached to Greek Greeks. They preached to non-Jews, to Gentiles. Secondly, we're going to see that Barnabas has to come check out what's going on. If it's just Jews being converted, you don't need to send Barnabas to figure out what's going on from headquarters. But this is Gentiles, likely, that are hearing the gospel. And here's the amazing report. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, I'm going to spend a little time on this. This this message is going to have a fair bit of exhortation to it. I, I want to spend a little bit of time on this idea that the hand of the Lord was with them. I think Luke, in writing out here, is pointing out to us that what happened in Antioch is all because of God. What happened in Antioch is the result of the hand of God. And a broader idea or point is that the mission of the church depends on the hand of the Lord. The mission of the church depends on the hand of the Lord. What is the hand of the Lord? Well, it's a metaphor. It means the power of the Lord. They began to speak to Greeks, and the power of the Lord was with them, and many people believed in Jesus. It means the presence of the Lord. His hand is his presence. It's his strength. The strength of the Lord was with them. And they spoke and people began to believe. The work, the hand of the Lord, hands do work. The work of the Lord was with them. The activity of the Lord was with them. He's wanting us to get something here that it was God's work through these people that was saving folks and was birthing a mission center. Now this is important for a number of reasons. Um, First of all, I love it that we don't know who these people are. Most of the book of Acts so far, appropriately, has been famous Christians. Famous Christians doing the work of God. Famous because many of them are apostles and well-known. So we see Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, well-known Christian, and many people coming to Christ, the Spirit being poured out. It's historic. We see Philip. We get his name. We see him preaching to an Ethiopian eunuch. We see Philip, by name, going to Samaria, preaching the gospel and people meeting him. We see this guy, Saul, who's a persecutor of the church, who's there endorsing the execution of Stephen, and now Barnabas is going to get him to help plant this church. Just amazing. But we see Saul. He is this uh, persecutor of the church who gets converted and begins to preach the gospel in both Damascus and Jerusalem. Famous Christian by name, preaching the gospel, people coming to Christ. Peter, also not only the day of Pentecost, but he's used to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Well known, pages of stuff about Peter, doing strategic, important things, writing a couple of books of the New Testament later. It's important that we know who these people are because they are apostles laying the foundation of the church. They were with Jesus. They were authenticated by Jesus. They are sent by Jesus. So we need to know who they were. There's a connection being made here. But most of the work of the New Testament is done by nameless, faceless people. Most of the ministry is done by people we don't know their name. Most of the evangelism is done not by these guys, but by people who go and open their mouth and share the gospel. And God, the hand of God is with them. So far, most of what we've read about 
has been with people we know. But here, the most strategic mission center in the book of Acts is being planted by people we don't know who they are. All we know is that they had faith in God and they spoke to people you weren't supposed to be speaking to about the gospel. They took faith that I say you weren't supposed to be speaking to in quotation marks. God wanted them to. But the culture inhibited that. So they open their mouth and God works. God is pleased to do the majority of the labor of the church, by far the majority of evangelism, by far the majority of building the church through people who aren't famous and who aren't well-known, but who step out in love and speak for Jesus. And the key is not, are they well-known? The key is not, are they gifted? The key is not, are they a leader? The key is, is the hand of God with them? Because if the hand of the Lord is working through someone, things happen. People are converted. People come to Christ. And what happens here is their testimony takes root and all of a sudden Greeks, Hellenists, are coming to know Jesus. We we don't know who they are. We don't know exactly what they did. The, The passage tells us nothing about their leadership skills. The passage tells us nothing about their church planting plan because they didn't have a church planting plan, I don't believe. It doesn't tell us about their resources. It doesn't tell us about their connections. It doesn't tell us about their strategy. It doesn't tell us about their training. Were these seminary trained people? Were these people who had, we don't know any of that. Because frankly, it's not important to the story. What's important to the story is that there were certain men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. That's what's important. They opened their mouth. They talked about Jesus, the hand of the Lord was with them, and surprisingly, people who are shockingly getting saved, the Greeks, and there's not even an apostle there to lead and to oversee what is going. All we know is that they crossed a cultural barrier. Nameless servants that would launch the church, that would launch Paul. That's what's happening. And all this happens because the hand of the Lord is with them. I mean, this sounds so simple. We're so familiar with this, but I think we need to step back and think. When the hand of the Lord is with you, anything is possible that God wants to do. When the hand of the Lord is with us, anything is possible. But the reality is we can believe some very unbiblical ideas. We can give in and believe, well, uh, God uses some people, not all people. God uses gifted people, not all people, as if all people aren't gifted. God uses evangelists to share the gospel, not all people. God uses key people, not all people. God uses leaders, not regular people. God uses highly skilled people. God uses experienced or knowledgeable people, not regular people. And so we look around and we count ourselves out. If you've been a Christian for a year, if you've been a Christian for six months and you've read the Gospels and you've attended church for six months, I feel confident you know way more about Jesus than these people who planted the mission base to the world. Why? They had stories, true stories, but they had oral stories. We've got the Bible written down authoritatively, inerrantly communicated to us. We know way more than these people knew. Well, what if the Greeks ask a question they couldn't answer? I'm sure that Greeks ask tons of questions they couldn't answer. 
but they know who Jesus was, they knew what Jesus did, and the hand of the Lord is with them. And that's all that was needed. To know who Jesus is, to know what Jesus did, and to have the hand of the Lord with them. We count ourselves out. We characterize ourselves as unable, incapable, inexperienced. God will do that through someone else. And I think this narrative, which is so strategic, reveals to us that, well, that wasn't the plan in the early church. And I don't believe it's the plan today either. On the other hand, some of us may rely on ourselves. We may rely on ourselves. Well, what, I, you know, I will be effective because I've got the right method. I've got the right doctrine. I can answer the questions. I've got the right people. We're serving faithfully. If we serve God faithfully, then he will bless our work. That's the other extreme. One is, God couldn't use me. The other is, God must use me, because we're doing the right thing. And I'm a part of the right group with the right people saying the right thing. God must use me. God could never use me. And neither of them are biblical, because they don't focus on Christ. The biblical idea is, God's hand is with those who preach Christ. When the gospel goes forth, when testimony is given, people hear the gospel People are drawn to Christ, and the people of God, the church, is built up. Because the hand of God delights, the power of God, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit of God delights to show himself when Jesus is exalted, when the person of Jesus is talked about. It's all by grace. That's why people are converted. I love the description of what happens in Antioch, verse 23. They they get Barnabas, by the way. We'll look at him in just a minute. But when he came, he saw the grace of God. That's what he saw. So when Barnabas came, he doesn't say when Barnabas came, he saw the efforts. He saw the wise teaching of the men from Cyprus and the men from Cyrene. When Barnabas came, he saw the missionary strategy employed flawlessly. When Barnabas came, what he saw was how great these leaders was. He doesn't even say things that the rest of the book says. It doesn't even say that when he saw, he saw the boldness, that'd be appropriate. He saw the boldness. It didn't say anything. It says he saw the grace of God. When he showed up and he saw what was happening, he attributed to the hand of God is here. The grace of God is here. God is at work here. That's what he noticed, and that's what the scripture highlights Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. The scripture also says, with him, all things are possible. You know, I wonder, who who could you effectively, fruitfully share Christ with if the hand of God was with you? If the hand of God was with you, who could you impact? Who could you meaningfully serve? in the body of Christ, if the hand of God was with you? who could? What depressed person could you encourage if the hand of God was with you? What sick person could you pray for and see a difference if the hand of God was with you? Your family, who, who could your family encourage? Who could your family communicate Christ to? Who could your family welcome and incorporate if the hand of God was with you? Your community group. Who could your community group impact? Who could your community group pray into the kingdom, as it were, figure of speech, but pray into the kingdom? The hand of God was with you. 
Who could you reflect the love of God to in a compelling way if the hand of God... How about our church? I mean, what could happen if the hand of God was working through Grace Church? Who could we impact? What could happen differently in our city? What churches could we plant if the hand of God was with us? What, I appreciate Ephraim's testimony, I'm glad to know the wall is still standing, uh, that the young people uh, built the retaining wall, but what nations could be impacted through Grace Church if the hand of God was with us? How could God use you? What could you accomplish if the hand of God was with you? Let me ask it another way. What couldn't you accomplish if the hand of God was with you? That's a better way to ask the question. What is impossible if the hand of God is with us? What, what, if the hand of God, the power of God, the presence of God is working as we talk about Jesus and as we build our lives together and as we communicate and cross difficult barriers to talk about him and to represent him and to serve others, what couldn't God accomplish through that? Crickets. Not that he couldn't accomplish crickets. It's a, I mean, I don't hear anything. I don't, I'd, I'd be okay with a few more amens and stuff like that. Feel free any time. But on that one, the appropriate response was silence. I'm glad you didn't say anything because you would have been wrong. <laughs> what cannot God do? What, what, would he be in, what would he be limited doing through people who would speak? Nothing. How did you get saved? How did you come to know Christ? Unless you just picked up the Bible and read it, probably someone was involved. God used someone. A friend, a preacher, some guy yelling like me on a Sunday morning, a guy on TV, on the radio, a a relative who was converted. I don't know. He used someone to tell you something about Jesus. And why did you become a Christian? Because the hand of God was with that testimony, working through that testimony. This strategic mission is birthed by nameless witnesses. Take note. This strategic mission is then encouraged by Barnabas, and we get his name, and we learn some things about him. Verse 23, it says, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast hope, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas comes and he encourages them. Now, they hear down in Jerusalem, which is where the headquarters of the church are, they hear that, wow, there's something going on in Antioch. Greeks, Hellenists are becoming Christians. Now, they had already heard from Peter. They had already said, okay, you know, verse 18, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So they're already getting accustomed with this idea, but whoa, now it's breaking out up there in a pagan area. So uh, they send Barnabas up, and he's the perfect guy. We learn about Barnabas in the New Testament. His, his name is not even Barnabas. His name is Joseph. We learn that in chapter 4. He gives away land. I'm sorry, he sells land and then gives away the proceeds to care for the poor in the church. That's where we meet him. And they say, said the apostles called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So that was his nickname. But that's what people called him. We don't call people, you know, son of encouragement. I don't know how this would translate in English. Maybe something like Mr. Encouragement. That'd be what we'd say. Oh, that guy, he is Mr. Encouragement. When I was a kid, there was a Joe Encouragement. They would just use that name. He's Joe Encouragement. He's Mr. Encouragement is what he is. 
And then I guess they referred to him that way. Hey, have you met Mr. Encouragement? I mean, they called him Barnabas. That was what they started to call him. He was the perfect guy. Someone, one commentator said he was the man with the biggest heart in the church. He's the guy when everybody's freaking out and afraid that Saul is going to come in and trick people and start arresting them and maybe killing them. He's the one who goes and gets to know Saul and gets to know Saul's story, and then as a bridge builder and takes Saul to the apostles and says he's legit. He's really converted. Yes, he hated us all. Now he loves Jesus, and he wants to serve Jesus. And he, he, he brokers that relationship. He, he bridges that gap. So he took a chance. He risks. He's big-hearted. He's full of encouragement. And when he comes, he says, the grace of God is here. And what happens when he sees the grace of God? He was glad. A lot of people wouldn't have been. I'm sure they could have sent the cynical, critical person, person with a clipboard looking for what's wrong, and anybody could have found something wrong. Whoa, these people don't understand. Yeah, okay, they love Jesus, but they don't know that much yet. Be careful. This is going to cause problems. I know they do believe, but let's give it some time. Wait till there's some pushback. Let's, let's keep this low. Let's don't talk about it. Let's don't really do anything. I mean, they're going to get some pushback and a big mess is going to come when Jews and Gentiles together. Uh, let's just wait and see. You know, it could have been distance. could have been skeptical. could have been critical. Wow, these people are different. Yeah, they, they know a little bit about Jesus and they believe, but man, they're customs. Do you know what they're eating? I, I know about that vision and stuff, but do you know what they're eating? Do you know how they're talking? Do you know what these new believers are really like? He certainly didn't go into them and say, you guys need to embrace Jewish customs. You need to look more like me, a Jew. He didn't do that. He goes in and he celebrates the grace of of God, He sees God at work. He was glad. He exhorts them then to remain faithful to the Lord. So recognizing the grace of God doesn't mean there's no challenge. Recognizing the grace of God doesn't mean there's no direction given. He doesn't walk in and just say, hey, God's alive here. You guys are getting becoming Christians. Hope that all works out. No, he tells them, God is alive, I'm celebrating, this is great, now we're going to need some instruction, let's all press on and remain faithful to God. Let's serve Jesus, let's obey the Lord, let's learn the scripture, let's let him change us, let's respond to change. He exhorts them to press on. Grace doesn't mean that there's no, that there's no charge, there's no exhortation, there's no command from scripture to walk with the Lord and obey him and be conformed to his image. That is grace, that's what grace does. It grabs us just as we are, it puts us together with the people of God, and then by the Spirit he changes us. So he calls them to press on. He exhorted them, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. This is great what he's doing. He doesn't question it, but he says, let's press on, guys. Let's press on. He celebrates grace. Why does he celebrate grace? Maybe the answers are obvious, but the text tells us, verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For, verse 23, that means because. For, here's the reason, here's the reason he celebrated grace. He was a good man. Bad people don't celebrate grace. Bad people are cynical. Cynicism, hypercriticalness, that's bad. That's sin. Cynics are not called good people. In Christ, 
They may be declared righteous and we need to grow in our belief from our unbelief. But it says that he's a good man because he's celebrating grace. He was, uh, and he was full of the Holy Spirit and he was full of faith. This is why he's Mr. Encouragement. He's full of the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit is present, he encourages to impart courage. The Spirit builds up. The Spirit does not tear down. The Spirit builds up. He is full of the Spirit, so he is encouraging what's going on here. He is full of faith. Faith looks to God. Faith sees who God is and what God wants to do. Faith doesn't look and say, here's where everybody is right now, and that's where everybody's going to be forever, and so let's just be critical. Faith says God is at work. God has started something here through nameless witnesses. God is up to something. We are full of faith in God, so he is going to encourage what God is doing. He is going to impart courage. If you want to encourage people, don't just worry about, can I say some nice things? If you want to encourage people, ask the Spirit of God to fill you and give you his perspective on people. And trust God in faith and ask for his perspective on people. He comes, because he's full of the Spirit, because he's full of faith, he celebrates and points out what God is doing. He recognizes the grace of God. Recognizing problems is easy. Easy. My spouse has problems. Okay, we're not going to commend you on your insight for seeing a problem in your spouse. And by the way, being blind to your own. Finding problems, there's no discernment necessary. Those guys in Washington, brilliant. You're brilliant. You notice there's problems in Washington. Brilliant. This church has problems. Zero discernment. If you're new here, I'll be glad to talk to you afterwards. I'll share some of them with you, starting with myself. It takes no insight to recognize problems. It's our default mode. Our default mode is complaint. Read the Old Testament. Read the story of Israel. The default mode is complaint. It took no skill to say, I'm tired of wandering in the desert. What took skill was to have the eyes of faith and to see what God was going to do, and hardly any of them saw that. What takes discernment is to see the work of the Holy Spirit. What takes discernment is to, to identify where God is at work. When he comes, he sees the grace of God. He does not come with the eyes of a critic, which is, which is evil if it's to tear down. He's a good man. It's not the work of the Spirit. It's the work of the flesh. It's not the work of faith. It's the work of unbelief. Now, I'm not talking about bringing... Uh, you know, admonition or correction to recognize where there needs to be change and bringing a word of change. That happens every Sunday. I'm doing that right now. There, there needs to be a place to identify change individually as well. And we've been talking a lot about that in the last six months in our own church. You need to be able to have a place and you have a wide open invitation to bring a critique to the pastors about the church Absolutely. I'm not saying that we can't critique our family, we can't critique our spouse, we can't critique Washington. I'm not saying that there's never a place. What I'm saying is there is very little discernment involved in doing so, oftentimes, though we think we're captain discernment when we bring it up. There's very little. And secondly, if it is brought with an attitude to tear down rather than the eye of faith to build up, recognizing God at work, that's the difference. There's problems here, and there's going to be problems in Antioch. 
there will be problems in this church in Antioch. But what we're going to notice is that he comes celebrating the work of God and building people up with faith towards God. So when we're dealing with Christians, there may be, this needs to change. When we're dealing with our spouse or our children or our parents, there may be, this is not good, this is sinful, this is weak, this is whatever the category is. But if we're talking to Christians, there will always be, and God is faithful. And the grace of God is at work. And let's look ahead and anticipate what he's going to do in our marriage, in your marriage, in our kids, in our small group, in our church, in our mission. There will always be, full of the Spirit, there will always be faith and there will always be a recognition that God is at work. The grace of God on display. Seeing and celebrating the grace of God, that's how we bring encouragement to others. Bringing encouragement is not just hey, you're really great. Bringing encouragement is pointing people to the faithfulness of God and saying God's at work in you. God's going to be at work in you. God's going to hold on to you. God's going to preserve you. God's going to help us. God's going to provide. God's going to change you. God's got a better future for you. God is going to do, God is near you. God is with you. He has not forsaken you. God loves you. The Father adopted you and the discipline you feel is the father's love the challenge you feel is because god is on display wanting to show himself strong to you the difficulties you face are not the sign that god doesn't love you they're the sign that god is with you so let's trust him together that's encouragement pointing people to the goodness of god and we can do that daily i have people in my life I thought about giving some names here, but I'm not going to. But I have people in my life, starting with my wife, Ginger, I certainly give her name, but I have people in my life that regularly give me these doses of encouragement when I'm down, discouraged. God's good. God's at work. Look what God has done. What's the character of Christ in the Bible? The Holy Spirit is present. They encourage me regularly. And, and we can encourage each other regularly. And then there are the times when we're crashing and burning where it's crisis encouragement we need. There's Mr. Encouragement for the normal stuff, and there's Mr. Encouragement for the crisis. I can remember a time in my life where I felt like I could not uh, move forward in my role and my responsibility. I was ready to just give up. Uh, I was part of a church plant in San Diego, California, and the church had a slow start. Um, it did not have really a church planting team. My wife, my kids, we had a single lady with us. And that was a church planting team. And then we started meeting some people very quickly. We had some people come that were like friends of friends type thing. So we kind of had this core team that did not know each other. And so after a period of time, I cannot remember how long it was. It maybe was a year into it or something, maybe a little more. Um, God was doing some things, but I could not see that. We had run through our money. And I remember with a brother sitting, I could take you to the place I was sitting, I was ready to give up. I was telling him, I just don't know that I can go on. I was discouraged. We didn't have a worship leader for maybe three years or something. So this was 
and I was really discouraged because I had to lead worship sometimes. And so that's, that really alleviated, I was never an atheist, but that alleviated my, my, th- that I would ever be an atheist or be tempted that way because I led worship and some people came back the next week. There is a God and, uh, so, and he is sovereign. That led me to the conviction. I became reformed just that right there. And they came back the next week. I'm reformed. God is sovereign because there's no way if it's all, if <laughs> there's no sovereignty, it's just, just free will and God's just hands off. They would have not come back, but he made them. And so that's how I became reformed. And uh, so I can take you to the place I was. I was in a Taco Bell. I was at, in Tucson, Arizona, and I remember the bank sign pulling into the Taco Bell. It was 113 degrees. Now, I don't know if any of you are from Roman Catholic backgrounds. I don't believe in purgatory, but if I did, that's it. It's Tucson, Taco Bell, 113 degrees. You're paying for your sins at that point. And then the follow-up to that, you're going to continue to pay for your sins. For if you go to eat at Taco Bell, trust me. Um, so I'm there, and I'm sitting across the table with my, I don't ever eat there anymore, I don't know, my, Mel, my Melt Mexi pizza thing or something or other. Oh, boy. And uh, a couple paper towels with a slice of cheese in the center of it. So I'm eating that. And, uh, oh, I had no time. I just looked at the time. I had no idea what time it is. And I said... Um, I said to this guy, I don't think I can, I don't know. I don't know if the church is going to make it, and if they do, I don't know if I am. And he just began to point me to the faithfulness of God. He didn't say, yeah, you can do it. Come on, high five. No, he just began to say, well, who, who began the work? Who called you? Is he faithful? Does he love the people? Does he love the city? There's times for pastors to quit. There's times for churches to close, but this wasn't one of them. And he just pointed me to the faithfulness of God in my life, in my family, most of all in the scripture, and said, press on, I'm with you. He made himself available, made resources available, prayed for me, pointed me to the scripture, and uh, my vision changed. I had an event with God. My vision changed because someone came, recognized the grace of God, celebrated and pointed me to the purpose of God and exhorted me, exhorted me just like he does here, exhorted me to remain faithful to the purposes of God with a steadfast purpose. A steadfast purpose. It takes faith to see God at work. It takes faith to keep going. It's easy to quit. It's easy to bail. It's easy to find problems. It's easy to give up. It's easy to say I'll never change or my spouse will never change or my kid will never change. Easy. I got there effortlessly. But it takes a work of God, the hand of the Lord with us, to give us faith in him, to see him at work, and to trust him. And that's the kind of message that Barnabas brings We need regular encouragement. And some of us in the room, we need crisis. Some of you are in a crisis right now, and you need crisis encouragement. You need someone to come alongside you and let us know. You need someone to come alongside you and remind you about Jesus and remind you of what he's done in your life and paint a picture for you, not based on fancy, but based on Scripture, of what God will continue to do, that he will be faithful. Don't know what will happen, but he will be near you. He will be faithful. He is good. He is great. And you know what happens when Barnabas shows up with grace, have a big grace fest? Many people were added to the Lord. Many people. It just continues. Because because grace is welcoming, because grace is overflowing. 
Because grace is upbuilding and not destroying of the work of Christ. Super quick. The mission is encouraged by Barnabas. It's established by Saul and Barnabas. Here's another thing I love about him. He goes and gets Saul and brings him here and says, help me with the church. Barnabas doesn't have to be the man. He doesn't say, yeah, the the apostles sent me. So let's go ahead and get a business card that says, you know, apostolic delegate. Let's put it on the website. Who's in charge of everything here? Barnabas, he came to save the day. Here's Barnabas' bio and profile, and here's what he's done, and here's how he you know, co- coalesces and, uh, you know, architecturally builds the church culture and directs. And No, no, he, just, he goes and gets someone who's better than him. Saul knows more than me. Saul is called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. I'm not. Let's get him here, and I'll help him. So he goes and gets a guy, Saul comes, they teach everybody for a year. And many people get converted. Uh, By the way, this text several times talks about the numbers of people. We don't worship numbers, we don't keep our eyes on numbers, we're not directed by numbers, but the Bible is not shy to talk about that. Verse 21, hand of the Lord was with them, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The Holy Spirit wanted us to know that many people came to Christ. Verse 24, for he was a good man full of Holy Spirit and faith. A great many people were added to the Lord. The Bible records the addition of people. Verse 26 uh, says that, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. There's lots of people in this church. And while the number of people is not the barometer or the measurement, it's not the metric for fruitfulness or success. It is not. However, the hand of God many times is pleased to reach and add. Many times, not not always. And when it does happen, it doesn't have to be ignored because, as one author said, God is not indifferent to how many people experience his grace. I wrote that down when I read it. God is not indifferent to how many people experience his grace. God cares. He wants people to experience his grace, and he wants the Gentiles, the different, the outsider, to be welcome to the inside. So Saul comes and establishes, and then these two guys are going to be sent from this church. We'll see when we get to chapter 13. Missions established by Saul and Barnabas. Can't say anything else on that. And the mission overflows in partnership. That's the last point. So the mission begins with, the mission in Antioch begins with nameless witnesses. It's encouraged, the mission is encouraged by Barnabas. It's established by Saul and Barnabas. And it overflows in partnership. I love 27. Verse 27, these prophets come down. One of them is named Agabus. He stands up and says, God told me that there's going to be a famine in the world. And it happened during the reign of Claudius. Uh, There were a number of severe food shortages that happened during Claudius' reign in Judea in particular. And so this did happen. There was food shortage for the people of God in the Judean area. And so these Gentile, this fledgling church which at best is a year of established church, they say, what can we do? Everyone, according to his ability, verse 29, sends relief. Everybody empty your pockets. What can we do? They don't even have the report of a need. They don't even have the movie video showing hungry people. They got a guy standing up and saying, there's going to be famine. (laughs) All they got is a prophetic word. And they say, what can I do in my ability? And they give. They give, they give, they, they take all their money, they send it with Barnabas and Saul, and they go down to the elders, and they say, here's the Gentiles, I love this, this is, joins them together, here's the outsiders funding you. 
Here's unity, Jew and Gentile together, because one is sending relief to the other. Nothing shows unity in this way like tangible support. It would be great to pray, but they didn't just send a letter saying, praying for you. <laughs> okay, well, appreciate your prayer. Put a loaf of bread in that package maybe when the, once the food shortage comes, right? So it's not just we're, we're just praying for you. No, we're going to take a collection up and we're going to give it so when the famine hits, you're going to have money and the prices skyrocket because there's not enough food. Then you're going to have money to be able to buy food. The Christians are. Why? Because the Christians over here helped the Christians there. Grace overflows in ministry to others. Grace overflows into partnership. The less established send funds to the more established in this situation. And that just shows the unity of Jew and Gentile. And speak of encouragement, that's encouraging. Encouragement is tangible help. When we're in our weakness, someone comes alongside us and says, we're with you. I want to give a shout out to our young people today because a number of our young people uh, recently went to a partner church, a sister church. You guys know this in um, in El Paso, a church that's in this was no secret, has walked through some difficult times. And uh, they went to help. So there was an interview with their pastor about what was going on in their church. It was on the Sovereign Grace Ministries blog. And uh, they asked him, Ricky Alcantar, this question. I, want to re- I just read this on a, on a website, on a blog. This is on the Sovereign Grace website. This is what they asked him. What does partnership with Sovereign Grace mean for you as a pastor and for the people in your church? He says, partnership with Sovereign Grace Church has always been meaningful to us, but in recent years we've enjoyed the unique blessing of closer partnership with other churches in Texas. We've gathered together as Texas pastors at various times, and every time we do, God meets us in a unique way. One recent expression of our partnership is that Grace Church in Frisco, Texas, just sent out a mission team to help our church. They spent a whole week helping us work on our church property, do service projects in our neighborhood, do various outreaches in different parts of the city, and throw a big cookout. They even sent a live band, a drama team, and a rapper. Parentheses, I believe this sets a new standard in all Sovereign Grace mission teams. <laughs> that was Cameron Alban, Alman, who was going just as a high school kid, but now is publicly labeled. They sent a rapper. Uh, <laughs> when they left, when they left, young people, he, he, what he doesn't say in here is that these were all young people. The majority, there was a few. Rob led the team, there was a few other adults, but it was mostly all young people high school and some college. When they left, we had newly painted children's ministry classrooms, a new bookstore, new relationships with folks in the neighborhood, and an encouraged, that's it, an encouraged church body. It's one thing to have a partnership on paper. It's another thing to have a church send almost 30 folks to joyfully pull weeds in 100 degree heat as an expression of that partnership. I'm moved by the young people and that you did that. It's one thing to say, yeah, we agree with that statement of faith. List us on the website. Yeah, put us up. We're in. We're in. We'll come to a conference and get blessed. It's another thing to say that, okay, the young people are going to take, they're going to pull weeds in a 100-degree heat, which sounds like a lot to some people. For us, it was a dry heat, so it's probably easier than pulling weeds in their own lawn. But let's don't take away from the moment. Um, <laughs> 
it was probably easier than doing it at home. <laughs> but okay. It was a dry heat. It was in the desert. So that's partnership. In these guys, it overflows. Where's a need we can meet? Grace doesn't terminate on us. We've been encouraged, so who can we encourage? And what Ricky says, the reason I read this, and you may have read it, I can't remember, maybe someone else we even read it in church, I can't remember. But the reason I read it was because he used, when they left, here's what we had. Okay, we had a bookstore, great, children's ministry classrooms, weeds pulled, we've met people in the neighborhood, I love all that. And we have an encouraged church. We're built up because you prayed, because you gave, because you sent, because, wow, this is tangible. That's what grace does. It it fills us, it touches us, so that we're stimulated with faith towards God, so that we're full of the Spirit, so that it overflows us to other people. And you don't have to take a week off and drive across the state to do that. You can do it in the lobby when we're done here. You can invite someone to lunch or to your house. You can be overflowed with grace and open up and speak to the person in the cubicle next to you tomorrow. You can share with your neighbor. You can... Take someone who's discouraged that you know and come alongside. And instead of piling on, take to, seek to relieve some of the burden and the discouragement. Seek to encourage them. You can come alongside someone who wants to give up and say, I'm with you. I'm with you. And 15 years later, they'll still get emotional when they think about it. That's the work of God. That's the grace of God. That's the church. That's the church. May God do this in deeper ways in us and through us that we might see his grace and that nameless, we're all nameless ultimately, but that, 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 that us, regular folk, would be used by God to do great things for the kingdom. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.